right, so we're back in Exodus today. Our text, Exodus 30, 17 to 21, the title of my sermon, Washed in the Blood. And I'm going to repeat this big idea multiple times this morning. One must be washed to be in God's presence. One must be washed to be in God's presence. Amen? I hope we agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think I would have done well in the mid-19th century during the time of Manifest Destiny. I've always had this adventurous spirit. I've always wanted to explore the unexplored, right? And so when I was younger, I was always looking for things to do. I was always looking for adventure. And I remember when I was younger, me and some friends, we found this giant culvert downtown. And I said, let's go. Where? Let's go into the darkness. Let's go into that tunnel and see what we find. Why? Have you been? No. Have you been? No. I've not been either. Who knows what we'll find? That's the way I talked when I was younger, and kids would follow me. And so we went and got flashlights, and we went into the tunnel for like an hour and a half, and we came out men. No, we didn't. We came out smelling horrible, because if, if you know what's underground, sewer. We came out covered in filth. We came out scaring young children because of the way we looked and the way we smelled. I think it would have been appropriate to just walk us through one of those car washes. We needed to be washed. We needed to be cleaned. We stunk and we were not presentable. That was the first of many adventures that ended that way. You come out, you're just like, what happened? We were hanging out with Chris again. He promised us adventure. <laughs> we got dirty. Um, friends, listen, all of us, without Christ, we're dirty. We stink. We stink. We need to be washed. If someone asked you, and you're a believer, if someone asked you, what is my greatest need? I hope that you would answer without hesitating, you need to be washed and only Jesus can make you clean. Amen? You need to be washed. One must be washed to be in God's presence. One must be washed by Jesus. Well, we're going to look at the bronze basin this morning. With this being really the, the final piece of furniture associated with the tabernacle, we're going to ask the same four questions we've asked of every piece of furniture in the tabernacle. What is it? That's the first question. What is it? Number two, what is its purpose? Number three, what does it teach us about God? And number four, what does this particular item in the tabernacle, again, this is in the courtyard, how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? Those are the same four questions we have asked of every piece of furniture related to the tabernacle. Those found within the holy place and the most holy place and those found within the courtyard. Again, number one, what is it? Number two, what's its purpose? Number three, what does it teach us about God? Number four, how does it point to Jesus in the gospel? And that's where we'll end our time together. So the bronze basin, what is it? Now, although this may be the simplest furnishing in the courtyard of the tabernacle, its significance cannot be overlooked, especially given its placement. Its placement is everything. Where it's placed. God is intentional in all that he does. He's a God of order. Amen? And he places this in a very specific place, and it's intentional. 
But first, let's discuss its simplicity. Unlike, and this was interesting, unlike the other items found in the courtyard and within the tabernacle, the description of the bronze basin lacks what? There's no dimensions. There's no dimensions given. All we have is what we read in verse 18. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. We do learn, however, at the end of Exodus, in Exodus 38, you can write this down, it's a really cool verse, verse 8, that the bronze basin was made, it was composed of mirrors of bronze that were given by the ministering women as a free will offering. So again, they made mirrors back then, polished bronze, it wasn't glass, it was polished bronze, and they donated these for use in the tabernacle to be used for the bronze basin, which again was for washing. We're not there yet for the purpose, but I found this quote by David Murray. This just caught my attention. I think it's a beautiful quote. I think it's a very insightful quote. He says, it looks like, and again, he's talking about these women, these ministering women who donated these mirrors to be used to construct the bronze basin. It looks like these godly women were giving up their outward focus, their focus on outward cleanliness or cleanliness and beauty to focus primarily on inward cleanliness and beauty. I love this last part. He says, they brought their mirrors, symbols of personal beauty and glory, and dedicated them to God's beauty and glory. Now, the Hebrew word for basin suggests something that's round in shape, and being that it was originally used for Aaron and his sons, it's likely that it was rather modest in size. So not a big honking basin, something small, something modest. And then the bronze basin was to be placed on a stand for stability. But again, the emphasis, this is important, the emphasis in our passage is not so much on the construction of the bronze basin, but what? Its placement, where it's located. So I want to quickly talk about its placement, and then under question two, we'll look at the purpose. The text says, (coughs) you shall put it, now this is really significant. You can find diagrams of this online. If you have a study Bible, there should be a diagram, a layout of the courtyard, the holy place, most holy place, and then all the furnishings within the courtyard and within the tabernacle. But the text says, you shall put it, the bronze basin used for washing, between the tent of meeting and the altar. And what happened on the altar? This is where sacrifices happened. This is where sacrifices were burned. So between the tent, the holy place, and the place where sacrifices were presented, you had the bronze basin. And then the description, you shall put water in it. Because again, a basin without water, how are you going to wash? (laughs) Now, as we've discussed already, the multiple layers of separation between Israel and the most holy place was a visible reminder of God's holiness and Israel's what? God is holy, Israel is unholy. Again, the, the priest couldn't just waltz into the tabernacle, the place where God ruled over his people by his word. Instead, they had to, to follow God's carefully prescribed process. 
the final furnishing confronting the priest before entering the holy place was a bronze basin for washing. To ignore, now this is, this is big, this maybe caught you off guard, verse 20 and 21. To ignore the bronze basin, to kind of walk around and say, eh, I don't feel like washing today. To do that and to seek to enter God's holy place without washing was to invite what? What was the consequence? Death. Verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall what? They shall wash with water, so that they may not, doesn't say get sick or have a, a migraine, so they may not die. This is life or death stuff. Isn't that interesting? The final piece of furniture located directly in front of the tabernacle was a bronze basin for washing a, a sink of sorts. A sink. But why? Why was washing necessary? That brings us to question number two. What is its purpose? Now, I want us to see there's both a practical purpose and a theological or spiritual purpose for the bronze basin. Now, regarding the, the practical purpose, we'll, we'll start there, but our focus is going to be on the spiritual or theological purpose of the bronze basin. But there's a practical purpose. Doug Stewart, a well-known Old Testament scholar, he's written a really helpful commentary on Exodus. I got to study with him. He was tough. He writes regarding the practical purpose. Most modern people, he's referring to us today, most modern people know because of discoveries that are for them a century old. So we've known for about 100 years that washing hands and washing feet helps to prevent the contraction and spread of what? disease, right? So, I mean, washing your hands, I mean, that's why if you're going into surgery, your surgeon's not just going to rub his nose and, you know, uh, scratch his head. He's going to what? He's going to wash carefully. And then he puts on gloves because we've learned that washing hands prevents the contraction and spread of disease. He goes on to say, in Bible times, there was no understanding of germs or of the fact that washing skin could remove nearly all infectious microbes from skin. God, however, and this shouldn't surprise us, God who is all-knowing, God, however, understood the process entirely and benefited his people by teaching them the value of washing both hands, arms, feet, and legs. Now, Again, why wash the hands? Because if you're a priest, you're going to be handling things, right? Why wash the feet? Because how did they serve? They were, as my wife likes to go around, barefoot. Haley loves to be barefoot wherever she goes outside. And so again, they washed their feet and their hands to prevent the spread of disease. So that's the practical purpose. And we say, thank you, Lord, for that. But then there's the theological purpose. Dirt. Everybody say Dirt. Now, does dirt typically have a positive or negative connotation? Maybe if you're a kid, you know, it's I love dirt. You know, my kids, they love dirt for the most part. But dirt was a visible indication of the spoiling of a clean thing. When things are dirty, they demand what? Attention, cleaning. The house is dirty? What? What do you do with it? You get it dirtier. No, you... You clean it. Maybe you get it dirty. I don't know, but you should clean it. The, the term dirty, right, dirty, 
always carries a negative connotation. Again, you might be watching a football game, you see a foul, right? And, I mean, that was, that was technical. I mean, what are you doing? That was dirty. Again, that's never changed. If something is dirty, something must be done to remedy it, to bring it back to its previous state, its pre-dirty state. The dirt must be removed. Dirt ruins things. It ruins things. Therefore, it must be removed. Let me quote Stuart one more time. He says, Dirt in food mars the taste. Dirt in clothing changes both the appearance and potentially even the comfort of the clothing. Dirt looks bad, wrong, out of place on any surface where it does not normally belong. And most people regard the fill of dirt where there is enough of it to fill as objectionable, (laughs) vexing. Of course, it goes deeper than this. Dirt, in this time, in this culture, came to represent symbolically spiritual uncleanness. Everybody say dirt, spiritual uncleanness. That's what it symbolized. You need to make that association. The priest, before entering into God's presence, had to be made ritually pure or ritually clean. They had to be washed. They had to be washed. What we see in the Old Testament is that things and people brought near to God's presence could not be sloppy. They couldn't be blemished. They couldn't be spoiled. They couldn't be common or otherwise dirty. And as we saw in verse 20, the consequence... This is significant. The consequence of approaching the Lord unwashed was death because one must be washed to be in God's presence. Again, one must be washed to be in God's presence. Who's ever heard the words, wow, you clean up nice? I've never heard those words. But why? Why do people say that? Typically, it's a special occasion. Typically, you're kind of breaking from the norm. You don't normally dress this way, but wow, when you do, you clean up nice. Why do we clean up? What types of things do we clean up for? Special ceremonies, maybe a date. I I feel so bad. You ask Haley, what, what was Chris wearing his first date? She knows. I didn't really know Haley that well at all. So I wore what I normally wear, a t-shirt and jeans. It's a big mistake. I was not dressing to impress on that first date. But know this, after that first date, everything changed. After that first date, people would say, Chris, you clean up nice. You clean up nice. Why do we clean up? Because the event, or more specifically, the person that we're cleaning up for warrants it, right? They're worthy. They're worthy. Haley was worthy, right? I mean, when you, when you walk down, I mean, I've, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've done weddings. I mean, typically, right, there's, there's common wedding garb. You know, people don't wear shorts and a tank top when they get married. Maybe they do. I, I've never seen it. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but I'm saying the majority of the weddings I've gone to, I mean, the, husband's wear, or the husband-to-be is wearing a tuxedo, and the wife-to-be is wearing a really nice wedding dress, a white dress. They clean up nice. Whenever the priest would enter the tabernacle, it was imperative that they clean up. Again, why? Because God is most worthy. Amen? He's most worthy. There's no one 
worthier than God. He warrants. He warrants our best. He warrants us getting cleaned up for. In fact, we have to be. Because no one can be in God's presence unless they're what? Got to be washed. One must be washed to be in God's presence. Well, what does this teach us about God? What, what does the bronze basin teach us about God? I'm reminded, <coughs> I'm reminded of an earlier story in Exodus 3 with Moses and the burning bush. There's something that happens in that story that we can't miss. What happens? God speaks to Moses. He reveals himself to Moses, but he commands Moses to do something. Yeah, I mean, for most of us, you know, we're, we're not culturally used to that. Um, when I was in Washington, we had a lot of Asian families in our church, and if you go to their home, they would ask you to what? Take off their shoes. It's part of their culture. God says, take off your sandals, but then he explains why. He grounds it in what? You're standing on holy ground. Holy ground, because God's holy presence demands our holiness. Amen? What does the bronze basin teach us about God? God is what? He's holy. He's holy. I want to focus on a later story now. This is in 2 Samuel 6. This story is not for the faint of heart. This is the story of Uzzah and the ark. Remember what happened to Uzzah? Everybody's like, poor Uzzah. You know, Yes, this is a sad story. It is. It really is a sad story. It's not a story for the faint of heart, but it does teach us a very important lesson, and I hope we get it. It's a lesson we can't forget. Let me give some context. In 2 Samuel 6, the ark, and what was the ark? It was God's footstool, His throne, right? It was this portable box that carried God's law. The ark in 2 Samuel 6 is being brought back into Jerusalem. And how are the people responding? Is it a somber moment? No, they're celebrating. There's singing and dancing. They're excited. And then wait for it, there's death. It seems out of place. Singing, dancing, music, and oh yeah, death. Let's read 2 Samuel 6, 5-7. And David... And all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, that's an instrument, and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakun, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. It was being carried on a cart, and the oxen stumbled, and it began to tip over. And what did Uzzah do? He thought this would be very pragmatic. I'm going I'm to put my hand out and stop it from tumping out of the, the cart. What happened? Thank you, Uzzah. No. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. What did he do wrong? And he died there beside the ark of God. That's a holy moment. I think modern ears, they hear that and they get upset. He was just trying to do something nice. I mean, again, no one wants to see the ark fall into the ground. It doesn't belong there. Surely he was providing a service. Why did this happen? God's stipulations, his laws, 
for the transportation of the ark were clearly ignored. God, the God of order, prescribes things to be done a certain way, and they were ignored. What happens if you break God's law? There's punishment. There's consequences. The ark was carried in a cart rather than on one's shoulders with poles. That is how God's people were commanded to transport the ark, right? We've talked about that. There were rings, two rings on either side, poles of acacia wood overlaid with gold to go through the rings. And then again, the priests would lift up the ark and they would carry it that way. They're not carrying it the right way. And that's not the only problem, though. Uzzah, it's a great name, by the way, Uzzah. Uzzah was not an Aaronic priest and thus forbidden from handling the holy things of God. Furthermore, those tasked, those tasked with transporting the ark were commanded to never touch it. And that's the, the, the poles. The poles prevented one from actually handling the ark. Numbers 4.15, it warns that those who touch the holy things of God shall surely die. They've been warned. They knew better. But more than that, more than that, there's the issue of treating the extraordinary as ordinary, the divine as common. And furthermore, and this is going to surprise you, Uzzah, like those boys coming out of that big culvert, Uzzah was dirty. Now, when I say that, you probably think of Pigpen from Peanuts. Pigpen, right? He's got that cloud of dust wherever he goes. That's not what I mean by dirty. He was spiritually dirty. He was morally dirty. You see, Uzzah assumed that by reaching out, he was protecting the ark, God's throne, from becoming polluted by the earth, the dirty ground. Dirt wasn't the issue. Dirt wasn't the threat. It was Uzzah. Uzzah. R.C. Sproul has a brilliant insight on this passage. I want to read it for you. This is so good. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, he writes, The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was, this is so good. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God called the earth to do, being dirt, <laughs> turning to dust when it got dry and turning to mud when it got mixed with water. It obeys the law of God day in and day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was out of the hand of man that God said, I don't want it. I don't want it on this throne. We are dirty. We are defiled. We don't do what we were made to do. The earth does, right? The ground, the dirt, the dust, the mud does what it was made to do. We don't. We were made to honor and obey the Lord, and we don't do that because we're what? We're sinners. We're dirty. We're morally dirty. We are rebels at heart, all of us. Therefore, what do we need? We need what? What did I need? Me and my friends, when we came out of that tunnel, what did we need? 
We needed cleansing. We need to be washed. We need cleansing. We need to be washed. One must be washed to be in God's presence. Uzzah ignored God's stipulations for handling his holy things, and he paid the price. And more than that, Uzzah was defiled. He was spiritually dirty and thus unable to handle the things of God. To do so would be to invite death. And the same fate is warned against us in our passage. Verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. I think such warnings in Scripture are a clear example of God's grace and mercy. Amen? He warns His people. All of this is meant to teach us a very important truth, a truth that will affect everything else. We are naturally unholy, and God is naturally holy. In order for the unholy to dwell with the holy, it must be made what? In order for the unholy. Okay, so again, here's what we learned from our passage. God is naturally holy. We are naturally unholy. And in order for the holy to dwell with the unholy, the unholy must be made what? Holy. It must be washed and made clean. Again, what makes us unclean or unfit for the presence of God? What is it, friends? It's sin. And all of us are what? All of us are sinners. And no amount of tide or dawn can remove the stain of sin. I love tide. I love dawn. I love to wash things. Ask, ask Haley. I love to wash dishes. It's therapeutic for me. I got my music playing. I'm dancing. I'm washing dishes. Burning calories. Serving my bride. But you know what? Even though I'm an expert when it comes to washing, I'm not an expert, by the way, but I've washed a lot. I've used different soaps. And you know what? No soap, no tide, no infomercial. You see those infomercials like, it'll wash sin out. No, it won't. Nothing can. Nothing. Nothing that we produce can wash away the stain of sin. Only Jesus. Amen? Guys, listen. One must be washed to be in God's presence. And who can wash us? Who can make us whiter than snow? Who can make us fit for the presence of God? Only Jesus. Have you been washed? Have you been washed? And that brings us to our final point. Number four, how does the bronze basin point to Jesus in the gospel? Again, the, the primary point, the primary point of the bronze basin was to convey the necessity of purity for God's priests. One must be washed to be in God's presence. Let's do a little theology of washing. Is this the first place that washing is mentioned in the Bible? Oh my goodness, no, right? So I want to take you on a journey. A theology of washing. This is a theme that courses its way throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, pointing us finally, fully, climatically to Jesus in His blood, our need for forgiveness and ongoing repentance. The language of washing early on in the Old Testament, represented far more than simple removal of dirt and grime. Again, there was that practical thing going on there. It represented repentance and forgiveness. It pointed to something spiritual and not just physical. Here's some examples. Let me give you a few examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to talk about a theology of washing. And again, washing in the Bible refers, 
It's more than just removing grime and dirt and making something presentable physically. It's all about making something or someone presentable spiritually. Amen? So Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus 14, 8 to 9. Did I put these in your handout? Okay, good. <coughs> these are the laws for cleansing lepers. What are lepers? Not the animal that lives in the zoo. A leper, not a leopard. A leper is someone who has a skin disease. And they were rendered unclean. They had to go around saying, unclean. So this is Leviticus 14, 8-9. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water. And he shall be clean. And after that he may come into the camp. But live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day he shall shave off his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all of his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. Now, I hope you heard it. Paired with sacrifice was ceremonial washing. For the Jew, sickness and disease were symbolic of sin. In order for the leper to be cleansed and restored to the community of God's people, there had to be both sacrifice and what? Sacrifice and washing. It's not accidental. Don't miss this, by the way. It's not accidental that these two things are mentioned together. Nor is it accidental that the bronze basin immediately follows the bronze altar, the place of sacrifice. Through sacrifice, we are cleansed and forgiven. Say it with me. Through sacrifice... That was weak. Through sacrifice, we are cleansed and forgiven. There is no cleansing. You don't have to say anything else. There is no cleansing without sacrifice. Now, I want to look at one, two, three, uh, three more in the Old Testament, and I think three in the New. So, Psalm 51 2. Now, listen to both the verbiage and listen to the tense past tense, present, future. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, what kind of verb is that? Is that an active verb where the subject is doing the action, or is it a passive verb where the subject is being acted upon? Wash me. That's passive. That's really significant. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's Psalm 51 too. Hopefully we're all familiar with Psalm 51. Isaiah 1.16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Ezekiel 36.25, one of my favorites. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Who's doing the cleansing here? Who's the subject? God, I, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Again, who's the one doing the cleaning? The washing, God. And then we get to the New Testament, and what do we see in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. to Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul's saying that was you before Christ. But what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Acts 22.16 And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Now, don't misinterpret this verse. Baptism, no physical act that we do, baptism does not remove the stain of sin. Baptism symbolizes the inner spiritual cleansing work of Jesus wrought by faith. Baptism symbolizes sin's removal through faith in Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Three more. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed, washed with pure water. Titus 3.5 He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, I'm going to read this one on purpose, okay? Listen, James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, in the majority, if you were listening carefully, in the majority of these New Testament passages, the verb is used passively. Meaning, the washing is done. It's being done to the individual. Jesus must wash us. Jesus must wash us. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, in our trust in Him by grace, we are washed and forgiven, restored and made whole before God. We are spiritually washed and made fit for the presence of God. At the same time, the verb to wash and similar language is conveyed, it is employed to signify repentance, right? Wash your hands. Clean up. If you've memorized Martin Luther's 95 theses, I applaud you. That's wonderful. But do you know the first one? The very first one, let me read it for you. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So this language of washing, it's ongoing. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, you're washed, you're forgiven, but you're to continually clean yourself. Those who are clean are to live clean. Amen? Those who have been declared right before God through trusting in Jesus are to live right. We're to live washed. We're to live repentant. We're to live holy. Those who are made clean by Jesus must strive to live clean. I think that's the issue with so many Christians. I'm clean so I can live how I want to live. No! If you're clean, live clean. Live right, live holy. Live in a manner that honors the Lord who saved you by dying for you. Let me end with two applications. Number one, believe the gospel. Well, duh. No, seriously, believe the gospel. Okay, no, 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 I'm being serious. Believe the gospel. Believe that 
by trusting in Jesus, you are in fact washed. You're fit for the presence of God. You're forgiven. Believe that. Believe that good news. Again, I've said it, I think, 17 times now. One must be washed to be in God's presence. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're washed. You're forgiven. You're fit for the presence of God. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Preach that message to yourself daily. It's so easy to forget that. It's true. You know, there's a great story in Zechariah 3. Joshua, the high priest, stands before God, and Satan is there as well. And what does Satan do? Satan, the Hebrew word Satan, means accuser. He's accusing. He's pointing out the fact that Joshua, the high priest, is standing there in filthy rags. But what does God do? He commands that those filthy rags be removed, and he gives him pure garments, clean the language is clean garments. God cleans him up so that he's fit for God's presence. Who does it? Who cleans him up? It's not Joshua. Josh, he doesn't go home and dump into a, a, a mikvot, which is like a, a ceremonial tub for washing. He doesn't do that. He doesn't scrub. God does it. God cleans him up, gives him clean garments so that now he can be in God's presence. That's a beautiful pointer to the gospel. Amen? Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again to save us and to make us clean, to forgive us. If we trust in him, we're forgiven, we're clean, we're fit for God's presence. One must be washed to be in God's presence. And who can wash us, friends? Only Jesus. Number two, the second application, live differently because of the gospel. Live as those who have been washed. Like James says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This is an ongoing work enabled by the Holy Spirit. Let me read the rest of Ezekiel 36. So in 25, God will cleanse you from all your uncleannesses, right? He's going to forgive you. But the gospel doesn't just provide forgiveness, it provides transformation. What else does he say in Ezekiel 36? I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to give you a new heart with new desires. I'm going to give you new power by the Holy Spirit so that you want to obey me and live clean and live forgiven. That's what the gospel does. Amen? It provides forgiveness and transformation. Those whom the Lord washes, he renews and gives his spirit to so that they can live differently, so they can live morally clean lives. God makes us holy by his Son and empowers us to live holy by his Spirit. If you've been made clean, I mean, are you clean? Look around, are you clean? If you've been made clean by the Son, live clean by the Spirit. If you've been made clean by the Son, live clean by the Spirit. And remember this, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to make the people of God more like the Son of God. Living differently, living clean must involve the Word of God. Amen? You've got to know it. You've got to hide it in your hearts. You've got to gather weekly to hear it. You've got to study it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to meditate on it. If you want to live clean, you've got to be in the Word. It's necessary. Those who are clean, live clean. Have you been washed? Have you been washed? 
Man, we are dirtier than dirt. We are dirtier than dirt. We are spiritually filthy, and we need to be washed by Jesus. Have you been washed? Have you been made clean? Trust in Jesus today. Trust in Jesus. Trust that he lived the life you can't live. He perfectly obeyed God's law. All of us are lawbreakers. We've broken God's law. Jesus lived it out perfectly for his people, and then he died. He took the consequence that we deserve. He took the punishment that we deserve in our place. Amen? And then he rose again, proving that his saving work worked. So trust in Jesus, because again, one must be washed to be in God's presence, and only Jesus can make us clean. Let me end with this story about Sam, my daughter. Sam's two and a half, loves being outside, doesn't mind getting dirt on her knees, but she hates getting dirt on her hands. It's like disease. Like, Dad! Ah! Ah! You know, it, it can be on her face. She looks like Braveheart. You know, it just doesn't matter. If it's on her hands, she despises it. She freaks out. Do we feel that way about moral dirt, church? Are we comfortable with it? Do we feel that way about moral dirt? Do we long to separate ourselves from it? As soon as I wash her hands and they're clean, she's fine. She wants to remove that. Do we feel that way about sin, about moral dirt? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to remove it from us? I'm not talking about the consequences. Only Christ can do that. But that we just hate sin. We don't want to live in it anymore. What did Paul say in Romans 6.1? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Do you feel that way about sin? Do you long to separate yourself from it? Do you long to live clean for the honor and glory of the one who has made you clean, Jesus Christ? Again, those who are clean, live clean. Pursue holiness with the people of God. Get into the word on your own and with the people of God. Are you clean? Live clean. You can by the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that like Sam and and the way she feels about dirt on her hands, that we would feel that way about sin, that we would be disgusted by it, that we would hate it, and that we would seek to separate ourselves from it. I pray for those who have been declared clean by trusting in Jesus, washed and forgiven, that we would aspire to live clean, holy, pure lives, and that we would not try to do that in our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells the people of God. We thank you that you give us the Spirit, God, that you give us your Word so that we can live clean, holy, pure, God-honoring lives as our way of saying thank you for saving us. Father, I'm I'm thankful that we don't have to live clean, holy lives to earn your forgiveness. You give it to us as a gift for those who trust in Jesus, and then you empower us by the Spirit to live clean. Help us to be a holy church, a set-apart church. I pray that we would hate sin as a church body with a holy hatred, and that we would help each other fight sin, that we'd hold each other accountable, and that we would point each other to the Word. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you that only those who are washed can be in the presence of God. And Father, we thank you for the washing work of Jesus, your son, who lived, died, and rose again to save us. I pray for those who trust in him, Father, they would continue to trust in him. And I pray for those who don't, that they would today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.